Hello, and thanks for tuning in for another episode of Living the Questions with Oliver. I'm your host, Oliver Mesmer, and today I'm welcoming on my friend uh, Keller Hawkins. Keller is a um, an ordained deacon in the Methodist Church, as well as a um, a therapist who is currently in a training program for um, pastoral therapy, as well as marriage and family therapy. Uh, we had a great conversation about um, ministry, about uh, traveling to different places, and about um, spirituality, as well as what is exciting about being a therapist. So I, I hope that you enjoy the episode, and if you are able to on your streaming platform to subscribe to the podcast to be aware of future episodes. Without further ado, let's get started. All right, we're live. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for coming, Keller. Thanks for having me, Oliver. Sure thing. Um, well, I'll just introduce you real quick. Um, sure. Keller. hearing how you introduce me. <laughs> yeah. Kel, uh, so for all the the listeners out there, either single or double digits, you know, we'll see where we get. Um, Keller is a, a good friend of mine. We met about five years ago in six, six, six years ago. Good. Right. 2017 mm-hmm. on the island of Iona where she was doing a residency and internship, a summer volunteer program. And I was staying as a guest and we've stayed in touch ever since. Um, just, it's been, Keller's been a great person to talk to over the years about faith and life and we share a lot of values and it's been a lot of fun to keep in touch. Um, let's see, I wonder, yeah, so you, you grew up in Nashville, went to college in the North Pacific Northwest, um, yeah. and then spent a lot of time in these really cool um, peace and justice communities in yeah. the northern UK, Ireland and Scotland, came back, has done work as a chaplain. Um, even prior to that, I think when you were in college doing, working at a summer camp, doing some good work there. And recently, maybe you can 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 say you're ordained as a deacon. Yeah, in the Methodist Church, it's a little more complicated, but on the road to ordination. But I am commissioned. I am officially Reverend Keller Hawkins. Um, Reverend Keller Hawkins. So. Yes, and, and very excited for that. Um, yeah. So. Um, was there anything important that I missed? I mean, of course, like there's so much to, to your life, but um, we can. Well, maybe it's together. important to say that I'm also currently training to be a therapist. So I will be graduating soon with that degree awesome. and lens on top of everything else. So, yeah, could could you tell? Could you talk a little bit about where you're at now um, in life and yeah. sort of what are the things that are um, important? Um, sure. So I am, I'm full circle. I'm back in Nashville. Um, never thought that I would be back living here when I was little, but here I am. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And I am finishing up a degree at Belmont University in the mental health counseling program. Um, And I'm doing a little bit of a more complex uh, degree, I guess, in the way that I'm hoping to officially be licensed eventually as a marriage and family therapist, but also a clinical pastoral therapist. And Mm. Tennessee is one of, I think, only six states that has a licensure uh, for that, uh, which is pretty cool. My professor actually was the one that created that licensure track in Tennessee. So thanks, Dr. Bagwell. Um, So while I'm studying to be a therapist, almost graduating, I... In the United Methodist Church as deacons, we um, our kind of call is to bridge the church with the world. And so often deacons are found outside of the church, and that's the main area of service. And so I actually work at Belmont University as well um, in the Office of Service Learning and um, will hopefully eventually transition into more of that therapist role because I feel a real call to be out in the world, um, in the margins, um, as we are called to, I believe, uh, by Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and I also very part-time still serve, um, in a congregation. So I'm actually serving at the congregation that I grew up in, which is a particular fun experiment because <laughs> many of these people knew me as a small child as a youth um and now i'm back as one of their pastors so it's been a little bit of a role shift there but it's a community that i really trust and that raised me well um so it's a real honor to serve the folks at belmont united methodist church there's a lot of belmonts in my life right now so <laughs> i know it can be confusing for the outsider is that the name of a neighborhood? That... No, it's the name of, well, I think it's the name of a very wealthy family, white family, um, who kind of mm. took, um, had land, took land um, early on in kind of the Nashville history. And so I think that comes from that. I guess probably at some point it was a neighborhood, but it's mm-hmm. it's not officially a neighborhood now, so... Cool. And um, you, you've, I, I know we've talked about this. You've mentioned it, like how um, satisfying the work of being a therapist is. And that's something you've only really been able to experience since you've been in school. Um, so how did you, you know, make the, make the, um, the determination that that was a place that was sort of a, a role that you were called to? Um, is that how you would uh, characterize it as yeah, a call? I would definitely call it one of my vocations. Um, yeah. It's a bit of a lengthy story, but I'll try to distill it down to the good stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I And it's wrapped up in my capital C call story, I guess, um, sure. as, as folks have uh, and are asked to talk about in the ordination journey. Um But I, like I said, I grew up in this beautiful United Methodist Church that was really affirming, um, really allowed me to ask a lot of questions as a young person and never really gave me full answers, which I found as freedom and um, called me actually deeper into a relationship with God, I think, than kind of the more black and white, like, here's what you should do, here's what you shouldn't do types of 
theologies and churches that are out there that often cause pain and harm. Um, Mm. And so because I had such a beautiful relationship with God and the community that I knew of as church, um, I always saw myself wanting to dive deeper into theology, into Christian tradition. And so early on, I wanted to go to divinity school. I was actually introduced to Duke Divinity School when I was in ninth grade. Um, I went to Duke Youth Academy for Christian formation that is still ongoing today. But it's basically, I call it a two-week boot camp for young people on theology. Um, And my hair was just like blown back the whole time. And I was like, I want to do this all the time. This is incredible. Um, But I, so I always saw like theology, church, something having to do with people in my future, but I didn't quite know what that looked like. Um, I never thought I was going to be ordained as a pastor, um, but I knew I wanted to study theology and study God because God was so intriguing to me. Uh, And I also had a deep connection with people. Um, I experienced some of the most transcendent moments um, of my life in deep conversation with one or two people. Um, at a time. And so I've always enjoyed the sacredness of where one or two are gathered, right? Gathered in my name. Um, but I never considered being a therapist. I don't know any therapist personally. That's not like the, the language or lens in which I grew up. Um, but pastoral care and theology and the work of a pastor um, was that model was given to me in many different forms from the community that I was a part of. So, um, I just kind of went with what I knew and, uh, ended up at Vanderbilt Divinity School. I did not want to come back to Nashville that quick, but Vanderbilt was the program that made the most sense for me because there was such a emphasis on gender and sexuality and race, um, and how all that related to our experiences of God. Um, and our experiences of theology and anthropology. And so came to Vanderbilt and had an education for sure about a lot of things. Um, but it was not necessarily a really constructive time. I would say it was good for deconstructing, right? Like really bringing me back to the roots and what I really believed um, in practice and trying to kind of practice and um, experiment maybe with different theologies um, on the ground. And it was a really harsh time um, as a lot of learning time sometimes can be quite harsh. And um, I was really seeking a lot of respite after I graduated and finding other ways. <laughs> it's funny you just graduated divinity school. I know that you probably say similar things, but um, yeah. there was a real, um, there's a piece that was not taught to me. And I felt that um, in hole or emptiness, but I didn't quite know what to call it or what it was. I just knew that I needed more um, learning than the learning that was given to me. And maybe I saw glimpses of it, but again, I couldn't quite pinpoint what that was. Um, And so that's when I kind of explored these different communities, as you mentioned before, Um, these small 
ecumenical Christian peace and justice movement communities. And it was fulfilling. And also I felt like I was moving towards something and I didn't quite know what I was moving toward. Um, cause it felt like I was paddling on a boat in a foggy lake, like didn't quite know where I was headed, but felt, um, like I was learning and gaining things along the way that would, that felt purposeful of who I am. Did you feel like you were alone on that boat or that there were people? No, I think there were companions along the way. I don't think Mm -hmm. there were companions that stuck with me the whole time, but I think there were like certain people kind of came and paddled next to me for a while. Um, yeah, which was important on my, on my journey, but something came to a head in 2019 and I could tell I was stuck. Um, I don't even know exactly how I knew that, but I've always been somebody who really trusts my body and my body could tell that we were stuck. And I shared that with a couple of my very dear friends. Um, and they said, well, have you ever heard of a clearness committee? And I said, no, what is that? <laughs> and so they, they gave me resources to look up clearness committees, which is, of course, Parker Palmer has made these very um, accessible, maybe, or popular nowadays, but it's from the Quaker tradition, and it's a discernment circle, essentially, a way to find your way when you feel stuck. Um, a way, not the way, but a way. And I looked more into it and I discerned that I think this would be really good for me. And so I gathered dear ones from many parts of my life um, in October of 2019 um, to help me get unstuck. Uh, And it was a really intense two hour experience. I, but it was the richest time I think that I've had in terms of discernment um, and I really trusted the people that I asked to come um, to really ask really articulate questions and questions that I knew would move things within me to some kind of unstuckness and um, one of processing an experience like that takes time I think And I was in deep community and then I needed to paddle on my own, as you kind of said, like I needed to really feel out what was going on in that discernment um, for myself. So it really took me about two months before I really unpacked (laughs) that. And I locked myself in a room. I put massive post-it notes all over the room and I just went for it and just wrote down all of these things. And in this deep, deep, intense day of processing, therapy came up as an option. It's like, what if I was a therapist? It's the first thing. I don't even know where it came from, really. Um, again, some of these like things are divine, <laughs> spirit-moving types things. But um, it was one thing on my on my list, and. Funny enough, I didn't know that much about therapy. I'd been to therapy before, but I didn't know much about like training or anything like that. Um, But I looked into different things and I looked more into marriage and family therapy 
So I was really fascinated with like the systemic lens because I was taught how to do that in divinity school. Like I knew what systemic, that's how I saw the world now. Um, and so funny enough, one of the questions that one of my dear friends asked me during this clearness committee was, um, quoting one, a marriage and family therapist that I really love and respect. Uh, her name is Esther Perel and she's, um, has an amazing story, has podcasts, all this stuff, look her up. But she often says like, we're married to multiple people, even if we're married just once. Um, meaning that we often have different parts of ourselves that come out in a period of time that we're in a relationship. And so you're married to multiple people, whether you kind of know it or not. And uh, my friend asked, so if that's the case, what might it be like to go into another chapter of marriage with your relationship with the church? Because that was one of the big things I was really wrestling with during this clearance committee. So in the process of discernment, I was using like marriage and family skills and tools to help me discern <laughs> that I myself might want to become a marriage and family therapist. Um, so that was a very long winded answer to that question, but it was through periods of experiences and intense discernment within community and alone that I found that to me at the heart of things like healing is possible and healing is important, not only for individuals, but our communities, our families, our networks, um, and healing really matters. And being a part of people's journey as they seek to heal is one of the most sacred walks that I get to make with my clients that feels worthwhile and purposeful. It's the joining of all of who I am and all of what I believe together in a way that's unlike any other space that I have in my life. So. Oh, thank you so much for that answer. <laughs> that, that story. Um, I was think I was, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering um, kind of in response to your process were you seeing other people in your life that were processing things in a similar way that inspired you to do it that way or was that just kind of your you know your own method and and path that's a great question um and i would say it's probably the latter uh i I'm so lucky in my life to have so many wise, wonderful humans who have done really hard and courageous things. Um, and so I've seen folks do that and like switch careers or change paths or um, stop doing something, taking a pause. But I hadn't seen like the inner workings of how they decided to do that. I often just saw like what they ended up doing. Um, and so I really went with my gut. This is how I know I'm on the body triad in the Enneagram. Like I just really follow my gut <laughs> a 
lot. Um, and I feel like I take my kind of body knowing for granted sometimes because some people really don't have that um, knowledge base, but it's been one with me my whole life. I was an athlete most of my life. And so I have a very intimate um, and complicated relationship with my body. Um, but I trust my gut, particularly with big things that feel like there's a lot at stake and a lot at risk maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also come from a family of like designers and explorers and adventurers. And so mm-hmm. like getting massive post-it notes and sticking them on my wall, I don't think I've actually seen my mom or dad do that, but it's definitely something they would do if they were, you know, working on a really big project. Um, sure. Like I need the space. I need the space to breathe, to walk around, to jump, to allow that energy to move around. Um, but that being said, the clearness committee was not something that I stumbled upon. It was something that was offered to me. And so mm-hmm. I was, I trusted the people who gave me that um, option and invited them in and was really intentional about inviting people in that I felt like I could be safe with and fully myself, um, that they would get me. So resources were offered along the way. Um, but I definitely kind of went, went my own way, which is pretty, that's, that's typical of me. (laughs) Yes. Uh, knowing you, um, one thing that has been clear is your independent spirit and, uh, Autonomy is vital <laughs> for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, when you were in that place of feeling stuck, was there a part of you that just wanted to kind of push that away and push through it and just kind of continue what you were doing? Or did it was it sort of the much more overpowering piece of you saying, I have to figure this out. I can't I can't live like this. Mm-hmm. What's going on? I think there were both of those things happening just at different times. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of my um, real wrestling was having to do with me and my relationship with my denomination. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that came to a head in the 2016 general conference. Um, anybody knows anything about the United Methodist church, particularly now, you know, we're in the midst of a split um, based on human sexuality and how we believe or what we believe about people's sacred worth. And I've been very clear on that from the beginning. Um, Mm -hmm. My church has wrestled with it for longer than they should have. Um, But I kind of got to see everything come to a head in person. I went to general conference in person. Mm -hmm. And I think from 2016 onward, I think I was running from that stuckness. Um, but what it looks like when I run is I go find really cool places and people. <laughs> so that's, Iona was a run. Um, Corey Mila in Northern Ireland was a run. Um, because I knew I eventually would have to face it, but I didn't want to yet. And I needed other enriching experiences in my life that still felt purposeful, that still felt like 
I could soak in information and learning in ways that were outside of my church or the context that I usually find myself in. And so when I finally felt stuck and admitted it, uh, wasn't until 2019 and I was in the middle of Missouri in a house by myself, um, working as a college chaplain. And there's a lot of confronting that happens when you're just in the midst of places that feel really unfamiliar. Mm. Um, and so I think it was like, all right, it's time. I need to do this. Um, and it felt really scary and felt really risky. And I didn't, I honestly had no idea what was going to come from it. Um, but something else that came from that clearness committee was my shift of call from an elder to a deacon in the United Methodist church, which was simultaneous to my call as a therapist. Mm -hmm. And I feel like was deeply connected to that. And so there was a, a new chapter in that marriage um, with me and my denomination. Like there was a new way that I was going to be committed and yoked to this institution that I had, that I love and I hate all at once. Um, mm -hmm. So when you are in that particular relationship with something so deeply, I think there's always a sense of stuckness and either you're going to run <laughs> and avoid it or one day figure out, okay, let's actually have the conversation of what's really going on. Sure. And gosh, you know, when you're, when you're talking about your, your relationship to the denomination and the denomination going through a split, um, I can definitely see the parallels to how you can, I mean, or at least how you can understand that through a marriage and family lens. Um, mm -hmm. Like the church is kind of, I don't know if it's a divorce because it was, you know, they were all, they were like always kind of married. Um, yeah. I would, when I was in a general conference in 2016, what I saw was a marriage that was so unhealthy and abusive, but there was no talk of divorce. And so it's like the worst case scenario, really like that. Those are the last couples that you want to see. <laughs> Because it's, yeah. it's so painful. Um, whereas Hostile for, couples. Yeah, there you go. That's one way to put it. Yeah. Toxic might be another. Um, it's helping neither one of them. Um, but now I feel like divorces can be really beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. They also can be really painful. But when you both have finally agreed, this is not working. Now what? Mm -hmm. There's more options than we have to stay together no matter what, even as much as we hurt and abuse and all that stuff. So gosh, I saw that early on and it was a helpful metaphor for me. Hmm. And you want to be part of the healing. And I want to be part of the healing. I want to be that marriage counselor. I want to be that divorce counselor. <laughs> I want to be that and, grief counselor. Yes. And it helps to have a little foot outside the, yes. uh, the church in order to do that, to have that Absolutely. distance and that perspective, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I, you know, I, I feel like living in between worlds like that can be a really um, interesting place to be, you know, where 
you can sort of bring perspectives in. I mean, you're well, full. Yeah. What? I think that that Jesus did that. that Jesus that's did the that. the model that I often go to. Jesus lived in between many worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, whether if you want to go the like heavenly world and the earthly world, but I'm more thinking like Jesus was often on the outskirts of cities um, in towns and mm-hmm. lived in the midst of power and with folks that had little to no power. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really feel convicted um, that that's where ministry happens. It happens on the margins. It happens in the in-between. It happens um, in the transition and the process. Um, that's where the holy and the sacred often finds itself. Iona calls itself a thin place because it's a place in between the worlds. Um, mm-hmm. in between the mundane and the sacred. Um, um, when did you feel like Iona was the place that you needed to be? Hmm. How did you, how did you? <laughs> My journey to Iona was um, literally because of a Google search. <laughs> I had no idea about Iona before. Mm-hmm. Maybe I did. Subconsciously, I don't know, but maybe um, someone mentioned it, and then must have. I don't know, know. but I literally searched Christian community, intentional Christian communities, and I think maybe I put UK, and Iona is the first one that pops up. Iona community, Um, Mm -hmm. and I saw that they had volunteer positions that are like longer term. So I was there for three months, a little more than three months. Um, and I saw their values, like they're very clear on the community's values, um, theologically, ethically, socially. Um, and it seemed like a dream world. (laughs) It seemed like a place that was too good to be true, uh, situated and working out of this centuries old abbey from 586, CE, like just stuff of dreams. Um, was it too good to be true? It was not. It was, it was exactly what I needed. Um, and I, again, I was looking for that respite. I was looking for respite, but also inspiration. I was so broken after 2016, May of 2016. Um, is that when you graduated from divinity school and the, uh, it no. was, I was still had a year of divinity school, okay. um, between so May of 2016 was the general, general conference. conference. Yeah. Okay. And I often say I didn't lose faith in God, but I lost faith in my church. Um, and so I needed inspiration for church that looked different and worked differently. Um, and the Iowa community seemed like one of the most inspirational places that was so intentional about the work that it did, um, and the global kind of reach of it, uh, just seemed like the place that I needed to be. And so I applied and they accepted me and it worked out and I packed my bags having really no clue at all what I was getting myself into. Um, and it quickly became home. Mm. It, 
was a place that I found deep community, um, deep theology, liturgy that we continue to use today, um, and a place that I return to regularly. I go, I try to go once every year, really. Um, COVID obviously changed a little bit of that intention, but um, it's a place where I feel there's there's pools of resources to get replenished from. When you were working there as a volunteer, did you feel like you were receiving a lot too? Like Oh, I was receiving way more than I was giving. <laughs> Absolutely. Um wow. Well, in my particular role, there was specific. So I was the Sackerson's assistant, which meant that I got to spend all of my days when I was volunteering in the Iona Abbey. And so I got to know that place intimately. Um, I knew where, you know, the broken boards were, like at the sacristy that had been there forever that's where I worked. Um, I filled oil candles three times a week and walked um, the space so much. And so in the silence, I feel like I was receiving a lot. And of course, the Iona community, whether folks know this or not, but the Abbey um, historically had um, monastic monks there at the Abbey and, and practiced and lived there on Iona. Um, and the tradition, it's a, uh, oh gosh, now I'm going to forget it now that it's here, but it's a particular monastic tradition in that um, your work is your prayer and your prayer is your work. So it's one and the same. Um, you're always praying and always working. Uh, not in a way that there's no rest, but in a way of like your work is meaningful. It's contributing to the community. Um, and so I felt that so much. I mean, my, my daily life was these beautiful moments of solidarity or mm, isolation maybe is one word I would put it. There was lots of time that I was working alone, which I loved. I needed that space. And then there were like structured community times in the midst of that, right? You always take a tea break at 1030 and then there's lunch at one and then you take another tea break in the afternoon and at tea break, you'd gather with all the other volunteers and the guests and just have a bit of crack as they say, you just have a little fun, um, mm. just chat of what's going on. And in the midst of that, there are three worship services in the day, you start your day at nine o'clock with morning worship and then in the summertime which when I was there after lunch there was a short um, prayer gathering and then the evening liturgy at, at night after dinner um, so the rhythm of life gave me freedom and joy and purpose that I had never experienced before mm -hmm. yeah it it seems like they took elements of the monastic experience and yeah, made that part of the, the community life for Absolutely. 20th and 21st century lay people kind of there temporarily mostly. And it, it's also feels like 
it's it's are they do they do it year round or is it mostly in the summer? No, it's year round. They, they, they even over Christmas in and Easter they have worship services and guests that gotcha. come and yeah, it's all year round. Is the summer more the high point though? Yes. That's yeah. mostly because of it's the tourist season on the island. Um, so they have a lot more day visitors. And so they try to offer okay. more spaces for folks. Um, Cause if you're coming over for the day, the ferries don't run um, in time for you to get to morning prayer or evening liturgy. So they would do a, a midday thing for mm-hmm. tourists. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I, I'm personally really interested in monastic ways of being and how like, they can be really restorative for the soul and mm-hmm. helpful in sort of one's relationship to God or even your relationship to yourself. Yeah, um, absolutely. And yeah, I guess um, like on the one sense you have a lot of time alone and you have time with God and then were there any, I mean, there, there were certainly a lot of people there that made an impression on you, but were there any like mentors in particular that, um, yeah, were, were, were particularly, they kind of took you under their wing or mm. um, gave you new ways of seeing things? Gosh, everybody gave me new ways of things, seeing things. Well, the wonderful thing about Iona is I was one of the like two Americans so I was not surrounded by other Americans. I was some of my best friends or my closest friends there. We had Scottish, Irish, um, uh, Spanish, Australian, Lithuanian, um, Indonesian, South African, um, I mean, just people from all over the world. And so each of us brought a really unique experience and it's an ecumenical Christian community. So we had Catholics to Protestants to not really sure's to um, people just in need of a space to rest. And so there were, um, and okay, so that's, the staff community and the volunteer community, but then guests would come every week um, from different places. And so you never knew who you were going to talk to and what they had to say. And I love that because when you really, when you know you only have a certain amount of time in a space, I think it actually allows for much more richness um, because it means I can dive into everything. Like, head first, let's go. How deep can we go? Cause we're only going to be here for this amount of time, or I'm only going to be with this person for this amount of time. Like I remember when you were one of the guests that I met. Um, and mm-hmm. it's like, cool. Like having these really fascinating conversations and you really had no clue that you were ever going to see a person again. And so it's like, cool. Like what do we want to talk about today? (laughs) Like, what have you been thinking? And often people come to Iona with these big, similar to me, right? They're wanting respite. They're wanting challenge. They're wanting um, experiences that will rejuvenate them. And so they come with openness and they come with 
kind of clarity. And it's wonderful to meet people over and over and over and over weeks after weeks after weeks with this sense of clarity and openness and allowing for whatever was going to happen to happen. Now it also became annoying. Like <laughs> that right, comes to um, side of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there's, there's a genuineness to it that is kind of unmatched. And I think the cynicism comes in with, the staff who had been there for a long time, or even the Islanders that lived there, right? Like, you know, things can get overrun and taken over and, you know, there's complexity and all of that. But I think there, because of my own sense of openness and lacking of cynicism, because I knew I was only there for a certain amount of time, I was really able to learn from everybody around me. Um, I learned so much about Brexit because that was before the vote or actually what, I think that was right around the vote. I mean, it was like the thing that people were talking about. Um, sure. Heard, learned so much about how people perceived the U S because Trump had been elected only recently, 2017. That was a year right, after. So you were there in the summer of 2017. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so it was important for me to experience and learn how the rest of the world perceived me as an American and U.S. policy, um, our politics, and hear it from a different perspective who weren't really living it. What was that like? I mean, were they seeing Trump the way you saw Trump? Like They... Yes, and I think at that point, they were still just like, I can't believe you did this. Like, this is really silly. Like, how <laughs> did you get this guy elected? You did this. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But they weren't living, like, the daily harm and trauma that people were experiencing. Um, and... Often the folks that I was talking to were from somewhere in Britain. And so a lot of the British tradition and culture is intellectualized a lot. Um, that's what I experienced. And so it was like, they would just talk about things rather than kind of understanding, or at least this was the challenge in the conversations that I had of kind of hmm. joking about things where I'm like, actually, like, this is really serious um, like mm -hmm. this is a real problem and yet not having any control of how do we get out of this? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I imagine that like at least being away from the U S for a little while while that's happening, you know, you hear people saying, Oh, if Trump gets elected, I'm, I'm moving to Germany or whatever. I'm moving overseas. Yeah. So having a little distance from being an American in America. Yeah, um, I mean, it was hard to be yeah. an American outside of the U.S. at that time. I mean, mm -hmm. I've, I've been, my family is, we've traveled a lot and we're always really cognizant of, of how we present and how we um, explore other lands that are not ours, um, especially with the kind of American stereotype of like, we just kind of take over and we which has historical, right. Um, 
historical roots, but hmm. being coming to new spaces with humility and with an understanding of like, I'm not the expert here. Um, That's the American way, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, but what I found challenging is that I, I found myself often having to not defend, but like I'm, I'm in some way accountable and culpable for what's mm. happening um, in the U S and that's by way of just me being an American, I think, but there's a sense too, that like, how can we take you seriously if you come from this space that in this context, that's harms a lot of people regularly um, and elects this reality star as a president, you know? Um, yes. It's a very silly thing indeed. That was challenging. Sure. But certainly made me more humble and I learned a lot. And, and even people from the UK are kind of looking down their noses. Oh, a hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Who was the prime minister at that time? Yeah, I'm trying to think. I think Boris was not far off. Was it like, Theresa May? Been, I don't exactly remember when he was elected, but he he and Trump were hand in hand, man. Yeah, so. they're, they're very similar in spirit. Mm -hmm. um, but switching gears a little bit, um, something that we've talked about that it seems like has been important to you is the identity of being a chaplain and you mm -hmm. have spent, was it two years as a university chaplain? Mm -hmm. And also like when you were in college, you had a close relationship with your chaplain. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to ask you about what chaplaincy has meant to you, how you came to value it maybe as a different kind of ministry from pastoral ministry how you can understand that or yeah and and sort of what it means to you yeah i mean in some ways i think um chaplaincy and i guess the language that i would use that my particular vocation is is like as a pastoral therapist so not just like pastoral care or like a pastor who does pastoral care but like a pastoral therapist who is trained with that lens um I don't see chaplaincy and pastoral therapy too far off. I think they're in some ways two sides of the same coin sometimes. Um, just that chaplains are often appointed or their quote congregation or their people is like to a specific place, right? Like prison chaplaincy or university chaplaincy or um, hospital chaplaincy. Whereas for, I guess, therapists or pastoral therapists, right? The, in different ways, our audience might be more varied in terms of the swath of people. Like it's not linked to a particular location necessarily. Um, but we're doing similar work, right? We, we're not there to fix people. <laughs> um, instead, we are there to be with people. That's that's the real skill of chaplaincy, I think, and, and therapy, particularly pastoral therapy. 
that's the gift. Um, and so I experienced this with my own college chaplain. Uh, my grandfather died like a week before I started my freshman year of undergrad. And um, my parents being the wise people that they are, they reached out to the university chaplain before I even met him and said, hey, our daughter is about to head over to Whitman. Um, it'd be great if you could kind of check in with her because this has just happened. Um, and I ended up meeting with him all four years of my university time. Uh, funny enough, he was the uh, husband of my swim coach, which I didn't know until months into <laughs> my time um, at school. And so I had deep relationships with both of them, but very different ones. Um, and he was just a witness for me in the midst of the struggle. And I feel like that's the holiest work that I get to do is witnessing. Um, again, not fixing, but witnessing changes something when we're witnessed. Um, it might not be something that we're easily able to pinpoint, but I think it changes things. Um, and so I th think the absolute importance of chaplains uh, and folks like me who kind of claim this pastoral therapy role is one who will be that companion on the journey is not an advice giver necessarily, right? That's not actually what we do. <laughs> uh, instead, we honor the fullness of your experience and whatever that might be. And so I'm friends with lots of other chaplains um, and we, we often use similar language and see humans similarly, um, not as projects, but as people going through some shit and we're there to be with them through that. And a lot of that work is grief work. As I like mm. to say, um, I do grief counseling with every one of my clients, whether they know it or not. Uh, and I think that's the same, the same is true of chaplaincy because life is grief. We experience loss all the time. Um, whether it's loss of somebody that we love or also just loss of our own freedom or loss of what we thought would be. That's a loss if it doesn't show up in the same way. And so normalizing the experience of loss and the experience of grief is so much a part of chaplaincy and pastoral work. Um, and a lot of my work as a therapist is saying, yeah, you're going through really hard things and your reactions and responses to things that make sense in the midst of all of these losses that you have experienced in your life. And how do we work through and process these so the healing can happen? Because healing cannot happen without that awareness of here's what's really going on. Here's the loss. Here's the grief. I think healing starts when we're actually able to face that, but not really before. That's incredibly sacred work. Hmm. 
it's an incredibly sacred place to be. And having experienced being a hospital chaplain through clinical pastoral education, it was one of the most kind of meaningful and sacred, you know, roles that I, that I was in um, when I was you know, doing that training a couple of years ago. So, um, yeah, I, I hear you. And is that draining, you know, for you over time? Like, I mean, I've only been grief? doing therapy for only so long. <laughs> like and a that's year? a particular type of like intensity. Um, sure. But I feel like I get so much from it just in terms of like fulfillment of my own call. Yeah. Um, it's draining if you're not doing it for the right reasons. Just like anything can be draining if you're not mm. doing it for the right reasons. Sure. Um, but I have never felt so purposeful um, that I was weaving together all these parts of me. Um, and so that in and of itself is energizing. <laughs> really cool. uh, and so even with the hard work, it's the hard, holy work. Um, I have a quick question. Just what is pastoral therapy? Like, how would you kind of explain what it is? Because, you know, people might have experience with like pastoral care with a counselor, with, or with a pastor or um, meeting with a chaplain or meeting with a spiritual director. Mm -hmm. Like what is pastoral therapy? Is it just therapy with God? involved where you can talk about faith um, yeah so this is a great question and i think scholars have been thinking about it for a while and in i think each pastoral therapist might even have a little bit of a different understanding but hmm. what's key to distinguish is pastoral therapy is not christian counseling and often those two things get um confused what's christian so, counseling christian counseling would be like going to a pastor or even a counselor they sometimes do this they call themselves counselors um with a particular question or something going on in your life and they'd True. be like well let's look at what the bible says about this mm -hmm. here's this and here's my advice to you so Christian counseling is much more directive um, and it's much more like the person doing the counseling has the power and the person seeking counseling is there seeking knowledge, particularly pertaining to their understanding of Christian theology or Christian scriptures. That is not what I do. And I am not into that. Some people are, I am not. Spiritually integrated psychotherapy or spiritually integrated care is sometimes interchanged with pastoral therapy. This is therapy that we like to say clients bring their whole selves to, whether that includes their religious tradition or faith or not. Mm -hmm. But all of us come from specific values um, and commitments. And we think that that's important in the therapy process um, that you shouldn't be, you shouldn't have to like leave those at the door that instead bringing all of you into the therapy room. And 
again, with that kind of power differential, we see the client as an expert in their own experiences, um, that we are there to walk alongside them, not to guide them, um, along the way. At least this is how I kind of understand it. I'm a very, uh, humanist centered existential therapist that has a lot to do with the pastoral lens of sure you might come with a question, but instead of me answering your question, I'll walk with you through that questioning, <laughs> um, trusting that the answer will come. Sounds like you do a lot of teaching people how to live with the questions that are on yeah, their hearts. Yeah, I would say that's maybe one way to put it. Is or, okay. Helping to normalize. Though, to normalize the feelings of discomfort mm. so we can build capacity to move through hard things. Normalizing the feelings of discomfort, building the capacity to move through hard things. Is that something that is best done one-on-one, -on -one, do you feel, or can it be done in a group or in a congregation? I absolutely think it can be done individually, in small groups, in a larger group setting, in um, liturgy. And I mean, that it can happen in lots of different ways. I definitely don't sure. want to say like, this is the only way you can do this is in, with a therapist or a one-to-one or -one chaplain, but... Um, for some folks, that's the best, that's the way that they feel safest, I guess. Sure. Um, and others, a group can feel really safe um, or working with other people. So lots of options. Cool. So it's kind of a depending on the individual, but it's clear that your call is to work with people one-on-one -on -one or as pairs or um, in this particular role that you found. And I'm so glad to hear sort of the, the excitement and joy in your voice and the certitude that you have, that this is like, this is it. This is <laughs> and what, it has taken me a of... long time to get there. Yeah. So yeah. I'm I mean, almost 31 for people contextually. I am almost sure. 31. Almost 31. And you found your life's purpose. At least the one for now. <laughs> for now. Cool. So when do you graduate? You graduate in August, so about two months from now. That's exciting. You're going to have a ceremony? Yes. Okay. All that's happening, coming up. That's great. And do you know what's next after graduation? Yeah, so I'm um, joining a collective, I guess is probably the best way to put it, um, called the Pastoral Center for Healing here in Nashville. And it is a collective of marriage and family therapists, pastoral therapists, um, licensed clinical social workers. Um, I think we're even maybe adding a spiritual director to that group. But um, it's a group of folks that want to be doing this work together and learning from each other. So I really respect uh, their philosophy and ways of being together and so I'll join them as a therapist as I seek licensure and licensure usually takes about two years and I'm also in the ordination process so that'll also be about two years from now god willing 
I will be officially ordained as a deacon in the United Methodist Church. Um, I'll continue working at Belmont University uh, for now, but hoping to transition to a teaching role at some point. And then I will, at least now, um, stick around with Belmont United Methodist. Um, I'm there about twice a month and help out with the youth and preach every once in a while. So it's been a good role for now. That's awesome. And you've been one of the most busy people imaginable this past year yes. or two. And so I'm hopeful for you that you have a little bit of a respite uh, following. Yep. It's summer's been good so far. Summer's been good. Yes. Well, um, yeah, I, I, I think that's it for me. Um, and I'm so glad that we got to do this. So thanks so much for coming on. And Thanks um, for the invite. It was sure really thing. fun. Yeah. I'm glad I had fun too. All right. Tune in next week. <laughs> for another exciting episode of living the questions keller before we go um what is a question that you're living with now what's something that's that's um going on for you gosh i have so many um and i You'll feel like it'd be a whole other whole other podcast about it um sure but uh a big question that I'm living with right now is, and this is very contextual to the U.S. and Nashville, um, but how how do I continue my commitment to nonviolent change and action while also living with the reality of school shootings and the practicality of harm reduction um, in the midst of like a really scary event such as an active shooter. And that comes very contextually for me because I just had an active shooter training last week at my work and like brought up a whole bunch of stuff for me. But that is one that I am currently living with. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, very a very important question to be thinking about and a very specific one. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Um, yeah. Something that it seems like it's, it's, it's certainly worth reflecting on both well, individually the and, and in community too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that'll Whole be next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> Well, thanks so much. Thanks. That's been our episode with Living the Questions with Keller Hawkins. Thank you for tuning in. And if you haven't gotten the chance to subscribe to the podcast, get updates for future episodes feel free to do so we're planning to do one episode every two weeks for this summer so looking forward to future episodes coming up they'll be released every friday if you have any input or suggestions feel free to reach out at ltqpodcast 
at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks so much. Keep living the questions. <laughs>